There's a story of Martin Luther that everyone should hear at least once in their lifetime. Early in the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church had been erring and making mistakes in several areas. The Pope of the Roman Catholic Church was putting what he said and his doctrine above what God's Word said. Communion was becoming unbiblical where they were teaching that Christ was literally present and was Christ was literally the bread and the wine. Not only that, they were saying that only priests could partake in the Lord's Supper, not the common laity, common people attending churches. They also were asking people to pay money to the church for forgiveness of sins and asking people for donations to remove their deceased family members from what they taught was purgatory. And the guy, Martin Luther, who was a college professor at that time, decided it was time to take a stand. When one of those people working for the Catholic Church came to his church, his city, and was asking for donations from people in his city to remove their family members out of purgatory. So Martin Luther wrote those 95 theses that we probably have heard about, in which he sent a letter to the supreme authority. He sent a letter of those 95 theses to the archbishop. He possibly nailed them to the door of the All Saints Church there in Wittenberg. He started to teach the correct theology and practice of the Lord's Supper in his college classrooms and in the church he preached at. He also started to explain from Scripture how salvation was by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And as you can guess, this created some conflict with the Roman Catholic Church, especially in one of his books he called the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church the Antichrist. There was an uprising against him. People started to question him, and it kind of came to a focus in what was the Diet of Worms, the council in the city of Worms, where they were going to invite Martin Luther to come to this council with cardinals and bishops and, and different people to discuss some of his teachings. Now, Martin Luther was not the first person to start to teach some of these things. There were other people that came before him. One guy was named John Huss, who taught some of the similar things that Martin Luther did. And in a similar way, the Roman Catholic Church invited John Huss to a similar council meeting, the Council of Constance. They invited him there to discuss what he was teaching. But when John Huss arrived there, he quickly realized there was no discussion, there was no conversation. They simply said, will you recant what you are teaching? John Huss said no. So they strapped him to a stake, put some wood near his feet, lit the wood on fire, and they burned him right there at the Council of Constance. Several years later, Martin Luther is teaching some of these same things and gets a similar invitation by the Roman Catholic Church. If you and I, if you or I were Luther, what do you think you would do in that situation? See, Luther's story reminds us that when the heat is on, when we're under pressure because of our faith, do we have courage to stand up for our convictions, or do we cower away from them? 
And what we're going to look at today in this passage in John 18 is a story of two men that are under a lot of pressure, under a lot of heat for what they believe. And we're going to see what they do in those situations. We're continuing our series going through the Gospel of John. And I probably don't say this enough as we go through this book, but the Gospel of John was written by John, the disciple of Jesus, the son of Zebedee. He becomes the Apostle John that writes the books of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. That's the author of this book that we're studying and going through. And three years have passed in this Gospel as we have been reading it and going through there. Starting in chapter 13, we come to the last night of Jesus' life with the Upper Room Discourse in John 13. Jesus has just seen his last sunset. He'll never see another sunset until he's resurrected from the dead. He spent John chapter 13 through 17 in the Upper Room with his disciples, giving them some last words and encouragement. Then in chapter 18, Jesus leaves that upper room. He crosses the valley of Kidron and goes up into the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where 600 Roman soldiers show up and arrest him. And they now take him back down that valley of Kidron, back to Jerusalem. So it's late, late Thursday night, or perhaps even early, early Friday morning. And John tells us this story that we read starting in verse 12 through 27. And he portrays the story of Jesus and Peter together. Almost two stories kind of side by side that he's describing them. If you've seen someone that works at a desk and at a computer, a lot of people now kind of have this set up with two computer screens, if you've seen that. They can bring up a computer screen that they can work simultaneously on different things at the same time. And that's kind of how John is presenting this story to us. Describing what's happening to Jesus and describing what's happening to Peter at the same time. So we're going to look at Jesus' trial and Peter's trouble. First, let's look at Jesus' trial and how Jesus is traveling to Annas' home. Starting in verse 12, John writes, So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and they led him to Annas first. For he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. John continues this story describing these groups of people in verse 12. He describes the Roman cohort, or in the NIV, it calls them a detachment of soldiers. That is the 600 soldiers that went to arrest Jesus. And then John describes the commander here. This is the guy in charge of those 600 soldiers. And there also are officers of the Jews. These were probably the temple private police force of the Jewish leaders. And they arrest Jesus. It says, the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. Probably bound him with a rope or some type of iron, put his hands behind his back, possibly even a noose around his neck, and they led him back across that 
Kidron Valley back up into Jerusalem. And we read about this guy, Caiaphas, in verse 13. They led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. See, now Annas was Caiaphas's father-in-law and head of that clan of high priests. Caiaphas was the official high priest at this time when Jesus was arrested, but Annas had been high priest before that. And this gets a little complicated sometimes because in the Old Testament, a Jewish high priest was supposed to be priest forever. It was a lifetime appointment. But because the Romans had power and control over the Jews, they didn't like one guy having that much power for that much time. So they would regularly change out who was the high priest, often through a bribe who had money to buy it. So Caiaphas is now high priest when Jesus is arrested, but it appears clear that Annas, who had been high priest in the past from AD 6 to 15, he still is the authority in power here. And that's why he's the one starting this questioning. But as Annas is asking these questions, John reminds us of a prophecy that Caiaphas had given earlier in verse 14. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was, it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. This was another future prediction of Jesus' death on behalf of people. And it's ironic that a man says this because he does not believe it, he does not accept it, yet he predicted it. Caiaphas was not a man of faith. He was a high priest that was involved in trying to kill Jesus. These are good reminders for us that it's not just enough for people to know about God. Caiaphas knew about Jesus. Caiaphas described what Jesus would do dying for people's sins, but he didn't believe it. He didn't follow Jesus. James chapter 2.19 says that even the demons that follow Satan know about God, yet they don't believe in God. It's not just enough for us to know about God or know that He exists. We have to place our faith in Him and trust in Him for our salvation. So Jesus travels to get in front of Annas, to Annas' home in verses 12 through 14. And then He has this trial in front of Annas, if we jump down to verse 19. It says, The high priest, which is Annas, then questioned Jesus about His disciples, and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I have spoken to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? 
What we see here is Jesus' first trial out of six that he endures. Now, we call it a trial, but it wasn't really a trial, more of an alleged trial that I'll describe in a little bit. It was more of an informal inquiry that Annas has. And Annas has two questions for Jesus. Who are your disciples? In other words, who are they and how many do you have? How much opposition are we going to experience if we kill you? And then what was your teaching? And the teaching is what Jesus focuses on there. But Annas has a problem. See, according to Jewish law, a case had to be built upon multiple witnesses. And one of those witnesses could not be the accused person. So he is getting himself in trouble right from the beginning when he is asking Jesus to convict himself and admit his wrong. And that's where we see Jesus' response in verses 20 through 21. He says, I've spoken openly in the world. I always taught in the synagogues. I spoke nothing in secret. I spoke to them. They know what I said. At first reading, it seems like Jesus is kind of just being flippant or cute or a little spicy, maybe someone would say in our culture, to Annas. But Jesus is exposing two things. One, he should not be forced to incriminate himself according to the law. And two, they need to go find their own witnesses if they're interested in putting him on trial. It's kind of like if you were walking down the street here in our town and a, a cop arrests you and takes you to the police station and says, now tell me what you're guilty of. And he'd say, you must not have went to the police academy. You're supposed, it's supposed to work the other way, right? You're supposed to accuse me of something and then produce proof that it happened. That's what Jesus is showing here. And notice in verses 20 through 21, again, Jesus places the focus on himself and takes the attention away from his followers. Five times in those two verses, he says, I... I have spoken, I have always taught, I said nothing in secret. He's taking the focus away from his disciples and his followers, and he's putting it on himself. And then we see in verse 22 this officer that responds, that apparently is watching and hearing this going on. When Jesus had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest. Apparently, there's a group of people watching this occur, noticing that it's being done illegally. And here we see Jesus's humiliation increase. Not only has he been arrested, now he is being beaten. And Jesus responds in verse 23. Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? In other words, he's telling them, you don't really want the correct answer, do you? You're not really in search of the truth. Jesus is showing two things. There are no witnesses, and they have no evidence against them. The chance of Jesus getting a fair trial is not going to happen. And so we see Annas' reaction in verse 24. So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, 
the high priest. Annas has been unsuccessful, so to use a football analogy, he punts on Jesus and just sends Jesus off to someone else. And what we see in these two sections in John's Gospel is that a true Savior sacrifices himself despite personal cost. One of the worst feelings we can experience is loneliness, and that's the feeling that Jesus has right now, as his trial is beginning. He's been betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas. He's been abandoned by the other 11. He has been rejected by Israel. He's been handcuffed, and he's been slapped in the face. His chance to have a fair trial is gone. They've got no witnesses. They've got no evidence. They're asking him questions privately, which they weren't supposed to do. And they're conducting a trial at night, which was also illegal. And they have hit him unjustly. Jesus' fate is sealed. But Jesus, he accepts this because just as Caiaphas has predicted, for people to live, one man had to die. John Calvin, one of those reformers that came before Martin Luther, said, the body of the Son of God was bound that our souls might be loosed from the cords of sin and Satan. See, Caiaphas, he was a Sadducee, he was a high priest, and he sees Jesus as the fall guy that they're going to use to kill and try to get their own way in the future. And it's interesting how the high priest, the guy that was in charge for all of the animal sacrifices at the temple, predicts the final and ultimate sacrifice that will be needed for people to be saved from their sins. He says in John 11:50, it's necessary for one man to die for the people. John places Caiaphas's words using the Greek preposition huper, which means to do something in place of or instead of. It was used in ancient documents if someone was unable to write a letter, someone else would write it on behalf of someone else. See, you and I, we deserve to die because of our sins. But Jesus took that penalty, and he paid the price on our behalf. And that's an invitation that is offered from the time Jesus died until today. That if you don't, haven't accepted that free gift of salvation, I pray that you would consider that and place your faith in Jesus because he died for you. You get to experience eternal life in heaven because he took your place. So that's Jesus' trial. But while this is going on, Peter is experiencing some trouble. If we go back up a little bit to verse 15, it says, Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered, Jesus, uh, entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest 
went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. In verse 18, Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. So Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane out on the Mount of Olives. He's taken back down that Valley of Kidron, back up into Jerusalem. And apparently there are two disciples that follow Jesus, Peter and most likely the man that writes this gospel, John. It doesn't name John specifically. There are a few ideas or, that people put out there. Some people say it could have been Joseph of Arimathea. Some people say it might have been Nicodemus because he was a Sadducee. It could have been Judas, some people say, which is interesting. If I was Judas and I let someone into the court, the last person I would want near me was the guy that just cut off someone's ear. But that's what someone said when I was reading commentaries. It could have been Judas. Most likely, John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee as described here. And Peter, as he follows Jesus and is watching this going on, he's near the door just outside of the courtyard of the high priest. It says in verse 16, Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, probably John, who is known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the doorkeeper, and brought Peter in. And this is where we see Peter's first of three denials. In verse 17, Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. So imagine a slave girl at the door of this courtyard, glancing up at Peter, asking him this question. A rough, tough, rugged fisherman talking to this slave girl. And she asks him a question that John frames in the Greek that expects a no, using the negative particle may, which if you ask it in that way, it's kind of like in English where we say, you're not this man's disciple, are you? Kind of, she gives him this subtle little hint. You don't want to admit you are Jesus' disciple. Maybe she knows he is, maybe she doesn't. Maybe she sees what's going on. But Peter sees this slim line of escape, and he takes it. He says, I am not. So he enters the courtyard, and he warms himself by this charcoal fire with the slaves of the high priest and those officers, those temple police that have arrested Jesus. And Jerusalem is located at 2,500 feet elevation, so it gets pretty cold at night makes sense that they were warming themselves by a fire. So that's Peter's denial at, by the gate with the slave girl. Then he enters into the courtyard. And in verse 25, John continues. He says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? 
Peter then denied it, and immediately a rooster crowed. As Peter enters the courtyard, a group of people that were warming themselves near that fire, they see Peter enter. Maybe they heard that slave girl ask the question. Maybe they were just greeting Peter. But they said, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? John frames their question in the same way that expects a negative answer. And Peter says, I am not. He denies it. But then they question him again in verse 26. And notice this movement. Make this observation about the movement from the general to the specific, describing this person that asks the third question of Jesus. It says one of the slaves, pretty general, of the high priest, getting a little bit more specific, who was a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off. This person had a very strong interest in what Peter could have done to his or her relative. And there's an emphasis here in Greek where it says, I, very, very early in the sentence, did I not see you in the garden? person says to Peter. This person is pretty direct. You are one of his disciples. Now it is dark and it was dark there and it's dark here. We got a little fire and it's night. I can't be 100% sure. I'm not willing to put money on it, but I am pretty sure, Peter, you are one of his disciples. And it's framed in a different way, according to John. He uses the negative particle, ook, which expects a positive response, which expects a yes. It's like saying, you're one of his followers, right? But Peter denies it again. Something that Jesus had predicted just a few hours earlier. In John chapter 13, Peter says to Jesus, wherever you go, I will go. Jesus tells them, you can't follow me where I'm going, Peter. Peter says, but I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. See, I think the thing we learn from Peter here is that a true follower stands out despite personal cost. In that courtyard, Peter just wanted to fit in. He didn't want to stand out as one of Jesus' followers. The closest and most passionate disciple of Jesus, Peter, can't stand up to the pressure that he is under in this situation. In the past, Peter expressed his devotion to Jesus both verbally as well as physically when he cut off the ear of the high priest's slave. But here he shrinks in the moment. But William Barclay, who writes good commentaries, if you ever come across them, he says we shouldn't be too hard on Peter. And he gives three good reasons. 
We shouldn't be hard on Peter because we need to remember that of the 12 disciples, he was one of only two that actually followed Jesus to the trial. The other 10, who knows where they are. But at least he's part of the two that are watching Jesus. We also need to remember how much Peter loved Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, when Jesus was alive and when Jesus comes back from the dead, no one can ever question Peter's love for Jesus. And third, we need to remember how Peter redeemed himself. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes down on the day of Pentecost that looks like tongues of fire and, and baptizes everyone. And then after that, people aren't sure what happened or what's going on. Are these guys drunk? Well, it's only noon. Of course, they're not drunk. And the New Living Translation says, at that moment, Peter stepped forward and he spoke out and he clarified what was going on. And then in two chapters later, Peter and John heal this poor beggar and they get in trouble and they're arrested and they are questioned by two guys named Annas and Caiaphas, the same two that are trying Jesus. And Peter and John, when they're told to stop sharing the gospel, they look him in the eye and they tell him, we will never stop. We will suffer and die if necessary. That was Peter's commitment later on. And that should encourage us that we should develop courage for us to stand out as disciples of Jesus in the situations we have. Despite the personal cost we might feel, maybe a family member says something or a coworker ridicules us. Our job as followers of Jesus is not to simply fit into the situations we're at, but to stand out. Someone was telling me recently about how she had this job where she worked with four or five other people in a van and they would get their stuff in the morning, they'd go work for eight or nine hours and then come back to the office. Well, these coworkers that she had said, today we're not going to go do our work. We're going to go to the mall and then we're going to go to the movies and then we'll come back to the office at the time we're supposed to and we'll just enjoy a day for us. Well, what do you do? You're stuck in the van with them all day. You're not driving. So she said she sat in the van for eight hours while they went into the mall and they went and saw a movie and they got pretzels and all that good stuff. Probably Starbucks too, of course. But that's the commitment we have to have. And think about how hard that must have been for her to be the only one that was committed to not go be dishonest for her employer. Our desire should be to stand out, not just to fit in. That's something we need to be reminded of regularly. And if we have young kids that are in junior high or high school, that is something they need to hear almost every single day to endure the peer pressure and, and the different messages that they hear. As John tells these two stories, he places Peter's denials next to Jesus's trials, I think right next to each other parallel, to emphasize how Jesus is standing on his own, how he is all by himself, how there is no hope for Jesus, how the Jews are going to kill Jesus even if they have to break laws to do it. 
And as we'll see next week, the Romans, they are going to execute Jesus even though they know he is not guilty. And in spite of all that going on, Peter takes a step back and refuses to admit that he knows Jesus. But Jesus was still prepared to die for you and for me. And that sacrifice that he makes should have such a strong effect on us that we should be committed just like he was committed, no matter the personal cost it might affect us. And that's the example we see from Martin Luther. When he's given that invitation to go to the city of worms, it's called the Diet of Worms, and you'll always remember it, a Diet of Worms, but it's like a council in the city of worms, diet. One of the meanings of the word diet is a convening or a council. He goes to that diet of worms. It's 323 miles to get there from where he lived. And he doesn't just travel there. He preaches his way there at every church and school that he could find along the way, preaching that same message that he had. It took him two weeks to get there. And when he arrives in Worms, he sees Emperor Charles V there. He sees a big group of soldiers guarding the emperor. There are bishops there. There are cardinals. There are even civil dignitaries, leaders of prominent cities in Germany are there to watch this car wreck that might happen. Then he enters the room, and he sees a table laid out front there in front of all the guys. And they have his books and his pamphlets that he's published there. And as Martin Luther arrives, he realizes there's going to be no discussion. He's not even going to get a chance to defend his position. They ask him two questions. Are these your books, and will you recant? And this was his reply. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And I tell that story from Martin Luther because that's the kind of commitment that we need. A commitment that starts with a Savior that was willing to sacrifice himself despite personal cost. And a commitment that leads to a follower that stands out despite personal cost. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that gives us these instructions for life, living in February of 2023. Thank you for being clear of what we need to do and how we need to go about it and all the different situations we're in. And thank you for encouraging stories of men and women that have stood up against pressures whether from Peter or Martin Luther or many others, that remind us, one, you expect a commitment from us, 
but also that there is a chance for redemption if we have failed, just like Peter. I pray for those here that if someone has not accepted your offer of salvation and eternal life, that your Holy Spirit would convict that person of their sins, that they would place their faith in you and commit to be a follower of you forever, knowing how much that will cost them personally. And for those of us that have made that commitment before, I pray that you would strengthen us, give us the courage to stand up in family conversations or work meetings or gatherings with friends, that we can stand up and, and stand out, not just to fit in. In these things we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So I'll invite you, if you're able to, to stand for the benediction, and we'll be dismissed. Let us go and worship you, Lord, in what we say, in what we do, and in how we think. Please let us saturate our city and our community with our worship of you. Amen.